Welcome to Dig Deep from KAXE, KBXE. I'm Heidi Holton. What you're about to hear in this next hour is from a live conversation we held at the Rife Center in Grand Rapids for Dig Deep. That's where we pair our liberal commentator, Aaron Brown, with our conservative, Chuck Marone. This time talking about strong towns and talking about the publication of Chuck's new book, Strong Towns, as well. And we took audience questions. Dig Deep is a podcast you can sign up for through iTunes or go to kexe.org to hear past conversations. Dig Deep event for KAXE, KBXE. I'm Heidi Holton. I'm the News and Public Affairs Director. Thanks for being here. We're recording this event tonight. It's going to be aired on the radio and through the Dig Deep podcast. You can sign up for that podcast at kaxe.org. KAXE, KBXE is a member-supported national public radio affiliate. We were the first rural public radio station in the nation. We've been here for over 43 years, so thank you. We can always use new members. We can always use people knowing about us. So tell your friends about our concerts and our events and to tune in. Dig Deep is a podcast and a radio conversation with liberal Aaron Brown. Raise your hand, liberal Aaron Brown. Conservative Chuck, conservative Chuck Marone right here. Um, it's been on the air, we think, for about two years now, almost coming up on two years. We discuss issues that matter to the small towns and the rural areas of northern Minnesota. So for me, one of the best things about these conversations is that they are not political. And though they are good talkers, of course, both of them, I think what impresses me most is that they listen to each other and they give each other feedback and they sometimes question one another. But we're going to see if that continues on tonight. It may be different. Who knows? In a live event. We're here to celebrate the book release of our friend Chuck Marone's Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. Throughout the evening, we're going to talk about what makes our town strong, what's working, what could be better, and what ideas you have for the places that you live. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about these guys, and then we'll start off with a presentation from Chuck about the Strong America tour. So Aaron Brown... Grew up, he still lives on the Iron Range of Minnesota. He was editor of the Hibbing Daily Tribune, a journalism, he has a journalism degree, then he went on to become a speech communications instructor at Hibbing Community College. He has been active in DFL politics over the years, not so much in recent years. Managed a few campaigns and he writes the blog, Minnesota Brown, about life on the Iron Range. Chuck Marone grew up in Brainerd on his family farm. That's where he continues to live. He's the founder and CEO of Strong Towns, an international movement that's dedicated to making communities across the U.S. and Canada financially strong and resilient. He's a professional engineer with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's of urban and regional planning, both from the University of Minnesota. Here's Chuck Marone. It's really great to be here. I, I've... Actually, this book came out October 1st, and I've been traveling around the country. This is the uh, 53rd presentation I've given in the last, like, nine or ten weeks. So uh, it's been a very intense bit of time. I've been East Coast, West Coast, Texas, Louisiana, 
uh, uh, all through the Midwest. It's been a crazy time. So thank you for making room in the cold of winter here. I scheduled this as the last week of the tour. Uh, Our staff said, where where do you want to end? And I said, I want to end in Minnesota. And I want to end with uh, my friends. So here tonight, Duluth tomorrow, and then back at the University of Minnesota on Thursday. So thanks for being here. Uh, Real quick, our organization is a 501c3 nonprofit. Our mission is to support a model of development that allows our cities, towns, and neighborhoods to become financially strong and resilient. I'll give you our website at the end. We're a media organization, so our uh, advocacy comes through sharing a message through media. We've got a website where we publish two, three articles a day, uh, three different podcasts a week, and uh, lots of good stuff that you can get. Um, The book is available now. You can get a copy out in the lobby if you want, or anywhere, including at your local bookstore, and I believe your local library. Um, I want to start the conversation the way I end chapter three in the book, and that is talking about Detroit. Uh, I've spent years now traveling around the country talking to people about cities and their economic futures, and the conversation always seems to come back to the city of Detroit. Everybody I meet has a a narrative about Detroit. Um, Those narratives are all coherent. They make sense. Uh, but there's very little overlap often between them. Uh, the only general point of consensus that I find about Detroit is that my city is not Detroit. Uh, my city has nothing in common with Detroit. Detroit is some type of strange anomaly, very different from any place that I live. I'm going to give you the strong towns narrative of Detroit because it's actually the exact opposite of that. When we look at the Detroit of the late 1800s, what you see is one of the wealthiest cities in, not just in North America, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. This is before Henry Ford, before the automobile. Uh, You see a place of such grandeur and wealth that you could go today and and take a building like the Detroit Opera House uh, and drop it into any European capital and it would be right at home. This is an incredibly wealthy city. And when Detroit was on its way to becoming the motor city, they were the first city Uh, anywhere to experiment with this new uh, auto-oriented style of development. They were the first city to uh, have auto-commuting suburbs, people who lived on the edge and drove in for work, drove back at the end of the day. They were the first ones to run highways through the middle of their neighborhoods to make this kind of uh, transaction happen. They were the first ones at scale to start ripping down buildings to create parking lots. They were the first ones to aggressively grow outward. And by the time we reached the Great Depression, And cities around North America started to uh, have huge financial distress, go into bankruptcy, uh, and and experience uh, great amounts of decline. There was one city and a handful of satellites that were kind of economically tied to it that did comparatively very well, that being Detroit. So by the end of World War II, as we were demobilizing troops and, and shutting down industries and trying to figure out what this next version of America would be, it was very clear to all the mayors and city council members, all the bank presidents and, and rotary members in cities all across North America what needed to be done if they wanted to make their city successful. They needed a copy of the development pattern pioneered by our wealthiest city, that being Detroit. That's exactly what we did. We all copied Detroit. We all copied the layout, the design, uh, all the innovations of building uh, that was pioneered in the city of Detroit. Detroit is not some strange, weird place. It's not some anomaly different than any other city. Detroit's just early. They're just a couple decades ahead of everybody else. When you take a very wealthy place and you spread it out over a huge area, driving up the cost and denuding the tax base, you get the insolvency of Detroit. Like all bankruptcies, it happens gradually 
and then all at once. I gave my mom an advanced copy of the book. Uh, she called me when she got to the end of chapter 3, and she said, Chuck, uh, this is a very depressing book. Huh. I said, Mom, stick with it. It gets better. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll share on behalf of my mom that it does get better, she said. Uh, but it's important to start with Detroit because what Detroit did was they took a system that was complex and adaptable and they changed it into one that was merely complicated. This is how uh, we talk about and understand uh, ecosystems. When we think of complex adaptive systems, we can think of something like a rainforest. We all understand that a rainforest is made up of many different types of flora and fauna. They all interact independently. They're all able to independently respond to stresses and opportunities in the environment to evolve and adapt. When we talk about a rainforest, we talk about the properties of it being emergent, uh, some order that is created by this complex interaction. We can think of a rainforest this way, but we can also think of human habitat in this way. When we look at the way that humans built cities for thousands of years around the world, it has these same emergent qualities. Independent actors uh, receiving stress and opportunity from the environment, growing incrementally. These are complex adaptive systems. This is different than something that is merely complicated. A Rube Goldberg machine is very complicated. We can marvel at the, 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 the complicated nature of it. That's part of the novelty of it. But we understand that if we cut one of these strings or move one of these blocks, the Rube Goldberg machine just breaks. Think of your automobile engine. Your automobile engine is a very complicated machine. It's been refined and honed by some very brilliant people to operate in a certain way. But if you stress it beyond what it's capable of handling, it doesn't adapt and become a toaster or a wash machine. It just breaks. This is the difference between systems that are complex and systems that are merely complicated. When we look at complex adaptive systems, what we're seeing is something that has an emergent order. <coughs> Where's my water? I, I've been, uh, thank you. <coughs> I'm back in Minnesota and I've developed the Minnesota cold now. If we subject a rainforest to too much rain or too much sun within a certain period of time, it doesn't collapse as a system. You might have some changes, some different flora or fauna might take over, but the system doesn't cease to function. Do that same thing to a cornfield, however. Give it a little too much rain or a little too much sun. It doesn't evolve and adapt and become soybeans. It just stops being corn. We see the same thing in our complex human habitat. Evolve and stress a city of the past <coughs> and what we see is that there's many different ways for it to respond to stress many different ways for cities to overcome uh, adversity today we build all at once and we build things to a finished state we build them intentionally to not be adaptable when we finish building something it is done and when we look at these monocultures they lack that inner capacity to adapt that ability to change and evolve over time when we look at cities historically what we see is that uh, they would grow in a very simple, comprehensive uh, way. This is Brainerd, my hometown, back in 1870. But the important thing to note about Brainerd in 1870, this series of, of pop-up shacks, uh, just some poor people with some hopes and some dreams, is that this is how every city in all of human history before modern times began. It began just like this. A, a few people, a little bit of resources, some hopes, and some dreams. If a city like this would fail... It wasn't a big deal. A little bit of money was put out there. A little bit of time and effort was spent. People would salvage what they can and they'd move on. But if a city like this started to grow, it would grow in a very simple to understand way. It would grow incrementally up, incrementally out, and become incrementally more intense. 
Think of a culture growing in a Petri dish. As more and more people would move to the place, the underlying land values would increase, and that would create a natural redevelopment pressure. And so after 30 years, this street here would grow and evolve to become this street here. This is the same street in 1904. And after another four decades of growing incrementally up, incrementally out, and becoming incrementally more intense, these two- and three-story wood structures would be evolved and adapted to become buildings of brick and granite. This is the same exact street. This is how complex adaptive systems uh, evolve. Uh, nothing that we built is built to a finished state. Everything is designed to be adapted, reimagined, uh, rebuilt, repurposed for new uses over time. When we think about the system evolving then to become merely complicated, uh, what we see is that this complex adaptive feedback breaks down. And when we look at a street like this today, here's the exact same street. Now a, a wasteland of parking and half-occupied buildings. And if you want to grasp in one snapshot why cities all over North America are struggling financially today, big cities, small cities, and everything in between, understand the communities made an investment of a half million dollars in that little stretch of street you see today. Where is the wealth that sustains that investment decade after decade after decade? It used to be there. It's no longer there. I want to pause and, and talk a little bit about why we made this transition from cities as complex human habitat to something that was merely complicated. My grandfather lived through the Depression, and I think it's difficult for us today uh, to really comprehend how the depths of despair were experienced by people who lived through the Depression. My grandfather was a Marine in World War II. He was actually the, one of the first troops in Nagasaki after the second atomic bomb was dropped. Uh, he told me once that he would have died if it hadn't been for FDR. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was his statement. This is a guy who lived in the barn of his neighbor during the Great Depression, uh, working the farm for him in exchange for uh, those accommodations and regular meals. Um, this was a hard life. Uh, and, and it's important to understand that people at the time didn't grasp what had caused the Depression. Even today, we don't have consensus on what the cause was. Even more important, no one understood how to get out of it. The entire New Deal project was just an attempt to try many things, one after another after another, to try to get out of this Great Depression. The only thing that got us back to something like full employment, something like economic growth, was a global war where we literally took millions of working-age people, shipped them overseas to kill and to die, and took millions of others and put them into industry building the implements of destruction. When it became clear towards the end of the war that we were going to win, the economists surrounding FDR started to freak out. They started to panic. This actually is a quote uh, from Paul Samuelson, one of the president's senior economic advisors. He said, were the war to end suddenly, there would be ushered in the greatest period of unemployment and industrial dislocation which any economy has ever faced. When these millions of troops come back home, when we shut down all these industries, nothing has fundamentally changed about the economy. We're just going to slide right back into depression. Of course, we have 2020 hindsight. We know that's not what happened, right? What happened is we imagined a, a new version of America. We took all of this industrial capacity. We were the last industrial power not decimated by war. We literally had the gold. We had lots of oil. We had lots of coal. We had huge amounts of industrial capacity. We had a nation united against common enemies. And we took all of this capacity and we redirected it towards solving the age-old problem of humanity. The age-old problem of humanity, how do you split one loaf of bread 
between two hungry people. And these people set out to solve it. And their way of solving it is still with us today. Their way of solving that problem, create a second loaf. And then create a third loaf, and a fourth loaf, and a fifth loaf. If we could grow the economy, if we could create economic conditions where we could experience rapid economic growth, we could solve all these problems. We would create enough prosperity where there would be plenty for everyone. And here's the amazing thing. It actually worked. We can look back today and we still nostalgize those magical couple decades after World War II because everything then was possible or seemingly so. And in fact, look back at the last presidential election. What did you have? You had two 70-year-old candidates describing the best time of their youth and how they were going to restore that for us today. Whether that was a vision of blue-collar jobs and Aussie and Harriet families, or that was a vision of an expansive federal government that could do things like urban renewal and the great society. They were both essentially talking about the same exact period of time, that magical two decades right after World War II. This kinetic growth machine we've created grows very, very quickly. It did what we set it up to do. By centralizing the tenets of how we grow cities, by centralizing the financing, by centralizing the building standards, the construction standards, by centralizing how we funded roads and infrastructure, we were able to cre create a kinetic growth machine never before seen in human history. This is a, a, a map of Fresno, California. I was just in California last week. I show Fresno because it, it has great graphics. Um, here's the way it looked in 1897. You'll see a small little town. I'll try to make this adjusted for radio. Small little city. And in the, uh, in the years before the Great Depression, you can see it would grow incrementally in that complex adaptive pattern. You see this methodical kind of slow way of growing incrementally up, incrementally out, and becoming incrementally more intense. But then, of course, after World War II, the kinetic growth machine kicks in. What we see is a completely different pattern of development, one that is aggressively hyper-horizontal. One where we are growing very, very quickly, where we're putting all this resource and capital into building things all at once to a finished state. This growth is immense. And we were able to take some of that prosperity and feed it back into the system to solve some of these age-old problems or to at least start to address them. My little town of Brainerd at the end of World War II was 13,500 people. Today it's 13,500 people. It's 10 times the area. When we look at this development pattern, there's some huge trade-offs over time. I was part of a big study in Lafayette, Louisiana. At the end of World War II, Lafayette, Louisiana was a little over 33,000 people. Today, it's over 120,000. That's a three and a half times amount of growth. It's a huge amount of growth in that period of time. Yet, when we look and say, how did the people of Lafayette get their water? At the end of World War II, it took five feet of pipe per person. Today, it takes 50 feet of pipe. That's a 10 times increase. How about getting their fire protection? But at the end of World War II, it took 2.4 hydrants per 1,000 people. Today, it takes 21 times that. So in Lafayette, they've grown their population by three and a half times, but they've grown their liability by 10 times and 20 times. And this would be okay. We can maybe accept this as an outcome if it was generating prosperity for us, if we as Americans were becoming richer and wealthier in the process. But when we step back and look at a city like Lafayette, well, they grow their liabilities by 10 times and 20 times, they only grow their wealth by a tiny fraction of that. Family incomes have gone up in that same period of time by only 1.6 times. And like families all over America, what we see in Lafayette is they take on greater amounts of debt. They save less, and their net worth has actually stagnated now.
for decades. One of the problems with switching to a system that is merely complicated is that while you can get lots of growth, it can become very, very efficient, you lose the feedback mechanisms that tell you something isn't working. You lose that complex feedback of pain and opportunity that says switch up and do something different. Here's an example from Brainerd, from my hometown. Uh, many of you know Northeast Brainerd, uh, Washington Street running through town. These are two blocks along Washington Street. Uh, the one on the left uh, is a block we call Old and Blighted. It's one of the 1920s version of that original pop-up shack. Uh, the block on the right here in this drawing uh, is the Taco John's today. Uh, before it was a Taco John's, it used to look like that old and blighted block. In the 1920s, as Brainerd was growing incrementally, the next increment of out on the edge were these three blocks here. Um, had things continued as they had for thousands of years, we would have expected to get second and third stories, buildings that were more intense, more ornate. Of course, that's not what happened. These were built in the 1920s, and then uh, immediately after that, we had the Great Depression, we had World War II, and then we had this new kinetic growth machine that kicked in skipped right over these properties and started building out on the edge. These buildings have stagnated for almost 90 years. We were able to get the one on the right torn down, and now it's the Taco John's. The important thing about Taco John's to understand is that it meets every requirement we have for growth. It checks off every single box that we have. It meets the zoning code. It's got plenty of parking. It meets the sign area. It's the floor area ratio. The building's got uh, a sprinkler system. It's got ADA-compliant bathrooms. Uh, we were able to get some stormwater improvements to put some native plants there. We were able to get a little bit of bike walk infrastructure. It meets the, uh, the financing criteria of the secondary market. It meets the insurance criteria. This is a great product for Wall Street to be sold off and securitized. This meets the checklist of our entire economy, how we grow. Here's the only problem, and you have to look at this from the community's standpoint. That old blighted rundown block has a total value of only $1.1 1 .1 million. We can go two blocks over in the exact same size, the exact same area, the exact same amount of community investment and liability, but a tax base that's only 600000 Understand what you're looking at. You're looking at the way we used to build cities, that complex adaptive human habitat. You're looking at it in its infant phase. After decades and decades, generations of decline and neglect, and it still financially outperforms the stuff we're building brand new today. And it's not even close. And we all understand what's going to happen to that Taco John's, right? Two decades from now, it will be a used car lot. There'll be a new Taco John's somewhere else. A decade later, it will be boarded up, and we'll be looking for some type of tax subsidy to get it redeveloped. We've all been around long enough to see this occur in our places. This is not a one-off phenomenon. This is something we see over and over and over again. I'm going to describe for the people on the radio what we're going to look at here. If you, if you think of a farm field, uh, parts of the farm field that grow up most robustly, we would call that the most productive part of the farm field. That's where we get the most bushels per acre, for example. So I'm going to ask a series of questions now. Where in the city do we get the most value per acre? Where do we get the, the most uh, productive part of the city? Uh, on, the, on the screen here, I'm showing you Buffalo, New York. If you've never been to Buffalo, New York, uh, Buffalo is, is a city that has experienced a great deal of decline. Literally, they've lost population every single year since the end of World War II, including last year. It's been a steady kind of downward trickle. I like Buffalo. They're doing a lot of really good things. Uh, there's a lot of corollaries between what's gone on in the Iron Range and what you see in a larger sense in a city like Buffalo, New York. 
But when we step back and we say, where's the most productive land in the city of Buffalo? Uh, can you point to the traditional downtown? Can you point to that complex human habitat that we built prior to the Great Depression? Not only is it this repository of wealth, it absolutely dwarfs everything else around it. We see this in cities of all sizes, everywhere we look. We see this in northern cities and southern cities. We see this in cities that are large, cities that are small, cities that are mid-sized. When we look, we see over and over again that the stuff we built prior to the Great Depression, even when it's occupied by the poorest people in our communities, even when it's neglected and in decline, outperforms financially the stuff we build brand new today. It's not even close. And it happens over and over. When we get those walkable neighborhoods, when we get those places that were built in this complex fabric, financially, they do incredibly well. When we shift to the auto-oriented development pattern, when we shift to the stuff we built post-World War II, the further you go out, the lower the returns become. The more negative drag it becomes on our overall economy. This is Crosby, Minnesota. And when I first went to work in Crosby, Minnesota many, many years ago as a young engineer and a planner, they said, Chuck, uh, we've got some great stuff happening out on the edge of town, but these core neighborhoods here are really, really struggling. And then we looked at where all their wealth was in those poor neighborhoods, in the neighborhoods where all the poor people live. We have, as a country, become attuned to the next great project, the next big thing we could do. And we've oriented our local governments to, in a sense, look up the government food chain and say, what is the money we can get from the state? What is the money we can get from the federal government? What is the money we can obtain through the bond market? What is the big developer that we can bring in here to make things happen? And we did this under this model that the more we could grow, the more pie would expand and the more prosperity we would have. But what we gave up is the complex feedback loop. The things that were telling us we've gone too far. This isn't working anymore. Stop and retool. Our challenge today is not to get the next big project. It's not to do the next big thing. Our challenge today is to humble ourselves, to look at what we have built and ask a very simple question, how do we get more out of it? How do we shift our focus to actually building more wealth, more prosperity within our core neighborhoods? The subtitle of our book is A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity because we deeply understand that in order to make this transition, we have to do this ourselves. We have to be the ones in our neighborhoods, in our blocks, in our communities to start doing that complex work of making better use out of the places we've already built. Um, we're going to break here and uh, have some discussion and some questions. Uh, when I stop at this point, people are always deeply dissatisfied because they're like, give us the five-point plan. I wrote a book, people. Uh, <laughs> like the whole second half is what we do about this. Um, so uh, I encourage you to, uh, to ask some questions and we'll converse. And uh, I just appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you. I also want to remind you that this Dig Deep Strong Towns conversation made possible by you because it's the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So give yourself a hand. Hey. Thank you. So I hope you have questions in mind for Chuck and Aaron. I mentioned at the beginning that Chuck grew up in Brainerd. Aaron grew up on the Iron Range. And they are have chosen to continue to live in their hometowns and raise their families there and work there. So I want to ask a question. Aaron, let's start with you. Something that isn't working in the Iron Range area, and I'm going to give you all, all the power in the world, how would you change it or begin to change that? 
Well, as I've written and said, I, I think the biggest thing we could do in the core communities of the Iron Range, and I, I realize I'm in Grand Rapids, where this is an open um, um, theological question as to whether or not we in Grand Rapids are on the Iron Range. Of course, I come from east of here. I'll use the term broadly today, and you can assess it however you range will. Range or range adjacent. Range adjacent. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll, let's go with the... Uh, <laughs> The TTRA, the uh, Taconite Tax Relief Area, and which includes Grand Rapids. So, um, but in in terms of the Iron Range, I think the biggest thing, um, and it relates to a lot to what Chuck talks about. These are communities that were built for a specific reason, and they were all built at the mouth of a mine, and they were built in a way where the miners lived in the town, and they walked sometimes just across the street to go into the mine and at the end of the day they walked back uh, and that's how these towns were designed and now uh, we live in an environment where it's no big deal uh, to drive you know 20 30 40 minutes from one side of the range to the other for a job uh, it, it is not a big deal to live outside a town drive in it, it's a lot of the same driving based uh, methodology that Chuck described in his talk if I had if I could do one thing uh, I would get these range communities focused on the most amazing parts of their community that they paid the most for. Uh, I, I, I'm born, born in Hibbing, and I work in Hibbing, and uh, we just did our final Great Northern Radio show at the Hibbing High School Auditorium. It's an amazing piece of architecture. It's a cathedral the New York Times called it a cathedral after it was built. And just imagine the kind of high school that would get the New York Times to come to Hibbing in 1923 yeah. to give a review of a building. Uh, that's the kind of building it is. Well, if you look at the downtown in Hibbing or any range town, you see old brick buildings that, while neglected, like Chuck talked about, uh, they're, they're, they're really amazing buildings that would be very difficult to replace. Just look what happens whenever there's a fire or water damage and they have to tear it down. What are they, they never build another one like that. It's too expensive. Look at what we get in our schools when we build a new school now. We get a very nice technologically, uh, you know, regulatorily uh, sufficient school with some big uh, sweeping entryway or something that, that passes for architecture, but we never get another Hibbing High School or a Chisholm High School or an Eveleth High School, which they're going to tear down, and the Virginia High School, which they're going to tear down, um, unless they find another use for them. So I would get our range towns to focus on their I I core. I don't mean to riff off of what Chuck said, but if I, if I could do anything, I would, I would stop um, extending sewer lines out uh, into the hinterlands outside of a range town because the best part of those range communities is right there in the heart. And... Um, Call me a convert to Chuck's way of thinking. <laughs> uh, we're always introduced as the as the liberal and the conservative, and we are. And yeah, boy, we are. do we disagree about certain things a lot. But I think that what's neat about this is that there there isn't an ideology to this way of doing things. There's a, a you can have a liberal or a conservative utopia with this kind of thinking. It's just. Um, because I, I see those communities slipping away and tearing down the buildings and being left with a lot of Morton buildings on the edge of town. 
and, and those Morton buildings, they blow down in a storm, and then that's it for them. Uh, but, but some of these three-story, four-story brick buildings, um, they last. They've lasted even though we've tried to kill them. But also, I would tell people to stop waiting for someone to come um, rescue your town. Um, because I see so many great opportunities. People throw events. Uh, one of the most angry people I've talked to in the last couple of years is a woman who organized a neighborhood cleanup on the edge of an Iron Range town and uh, um, got a, as many people as she could to go out there and was just aghast at the washing machines and old tires and and things that were thrown out there, that, and, and that, that she that in a million years, this small group of volunteers couldn't clean up. So, trying to get people to have some pride in their community again, and realize that that we are not chewed up. We we don't have to be chewed up in this fate. That even without a buck to our name, we can clean up our community. We can, um, you know, use what we have in a new way. I want to I want to bring up one that I actually wrote about in the book that I, I think might generate a little disagreement or at least conversation between us. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you read that part where I kind of attack the Minnesota miracle. Yes, I, um, I, may, I may have noticed that, Chuck. Yes. Yeah. So 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 we have this thing we did in the '70s that we have called the Minnesota miracle, and we kind of culturally rejoice with it. Um, we kind of take pride in our working together, um, and I, as a Minnesotan, like, I get that side of it, like, I get that part of it, and let me, for those of you that are not familiar with this term or this conversation, essentially, across the state, you used to have different, different tax structures, different regulatory structures, different licensing requirements from city to city to city. Some cities would have a property tax, some cities would have a sales tax, some cities would have different fees. Um, it was messy. And when you would go from town to town, you would have to deal with that city and their like small-minded parochial way of doing things. What a pain in the neck. And so in the 70s, one of the things that we did at the state level is we said, enough of this. We want to become more efficient. Again, think of this in the terms of this kinetic growth machine. The way you take a machine that's bogging down, you make it more efficient. It can do more with less input. So we want to make this machine more efficient. So all you local uh, you know, different little things. You're not going to have that anymore. We're going to have one property tax system. It's going to be centralized at the state. Here's what it's going to be. We're going to have no local sales tax. Okay, we may allow one for these little circumstances, but we're not going to have that. And basically, we're going to run this very efficient system where the state will be the benevolent, uh, you know, provider of all these things. And here's the amazing thing. It worked really, really well. Again, when you make a system efficient, the first blast is really great because now all of a sudden the local taxpayers didn't want to pay for a new fire truck. The state is now wealthier. They got plenty of money because of all this efficiency. They're going to pay for a local fire truck. We wanted to do something over here at the local school. Didn't have the money. Well, now, wow, the state's got the money. We can do these things. And all of a sudden the state is more generous than local taxpayers were. Fast forward now 40 years. And what has happened is the Iron Range cities have the same exact tax structure as Minneapolis-St. Paul, as every agricultural community, as every tourist community. We all have the same economy. So whether the money is flowing through your economy because of manufacturing or because of tourism or because of mining, you have to structure your uh, system in the same exact way. And so for us here on the range, 
while it might make sense to tax different things, the only thing we can tax is land and the only, or property, and the only thing we can do is in a certain way tax property. So now all of a sudden, we all have the same incentive to get the Walmart and uh, the, uh, the, um, the McDonald's and the Jiffy Lube and to use state money to do that over and over because that's the only way we grow our tax base, our local revenue. We've created a system that now is non-adaptable. And lo and behold, we step back and we look and our benefactor, the state, every time they get into budget problems, what do they do? The first thing they cut, local government aid. And so we had this benefit, and I see it, and I grasp it, but the trade-off is we're not able to adapt now. So if we would be better off in Brainerd with a different tax structure than you have in, say, Virginia, which I think we would be because we're two very different economies, can't do it, not allowed. What I would like to see is a repeal and to allow more tools to go in the local government toolbox so that local governments can start to evolve and adapt and address some of these stresses that are very acute in their communities in novel ways. I want to ask, we'll ask one more question and then you guys can ask questions of Chuck and Aaron. I want to ask about success when it comes to businesses in a strong town. You know, you've talked about the outside of a town and franchises or big box stores. Um, Brainerd's doing something pretty interesting I've been seeing with trying to get more businesses to open in downtown Brainerd. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of Tell us, how do you get local businesses to start up? What do you think, Chuck? And then also, Aaron, what do you think could make it easier for local businesses? I, 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 there's a part of me, I had this conversation with my wife this week. I said, there's a part of me that doesn't like the, uh, the means but likes the ends, and maybe I should just celebrate those in, in downtown Brainerd. Um, there is a certain revival going on in downtown Brainerd. Um, it's being done kind of in the same mechanistic way uh, that I, I, I think is, um, is not the optimum way to do things. Uh, if we look at downtown Brainerd, and I, I write about a place called Jimmy's Pizza in my book. Um, Jimmy's Pizza is this little pizza place in High Point, North Carolina, one of the most productive pieces of property in the entire city, even though it's just a little nondescript box. Um, it looks like that old and blighted block I showed you. Just, it's like a bare front, no ornamentation, just a little square box. But it's immensely productive. It makes great use of land. It pays a lot of taxes per acre because it, it is so productive. If you look at a place like that, or you look at a place like downtown Brainerd, or the block next to Taco John's, um, what these places need more than anything else it is not facade grants or fancy blitzy things to get new businesses in. Uh, or, you know, uh, other types of kind of tricks and schemes to, to do a, a little event here and there. I, I'm not saying those things are bad, but at the end of the day, what, they, what those businesses need is customers. They need people walking by. They need, like, flow of humanity. If you go to downtown Brainerd, there's, like, 6,000, 8,000 people living within an easy walking distance of downtown Brainerd. Notice I said an easy walking distance, not an easy walk, an easy walking distance. In order to walk that distance, you've got to cross these six-lane you know, roads running through the middle of town with high-speed traffic. You've got to walk on places where they will plow the street uh, within two hours of a snow coming down, but the sidewalks will stay not maintained for weeks. Uh, you've got to walk through areas where there aren't even sidewalks, where they've been ripped out. Um, we put our priorities in essentially creating an infrastructure to subsidize the uh, expansion of Baxter's highway strip as opposed to making it really easy for people who want to have a, a lifestyle in Brainerd's core neighborhoods 
to participate in the, the value of downtown Brainerd. And by the way, the improvements to make that more walkable kind of network happen would be pennies on the dollar of what we routinely spend to make it easier to get like uh, 30 seconds quicker across town. Um, these are not things that cost a lot, but they're things that would have a huge return. And you create that demand and, and people are entrepreneurial. They will come and fill those spaces. Aaron, anything to add? Uh, <laughs> only that, uh, and I, I always joke on Dig Deep that I'm contractually obligated to mention my historical research into the book that I'm writing. <laughs> But uh, the short answer, and I'll try to keep it short because I know we want to get to the questions, is uh, retaining wealth in the community is a, is a major factor. Um, and I'm dealing with this in my research because I'm researching, let's just say broadly, 1915 Hibbing. And it's a very uh, momentous year in Hibbing history. You have a political conflict between the, the largest employer, the Oliver Mining Company, and the city itself and its elected government. And the argument is over who's got the who's in charge of the revenue that comes from from mining, and um, it is the argument of Mayor Victor Power and Hibbing and his and his allies on the on the village council that that ore in the ground is a one-time resource of which the people of the community the uh, the incorporated community. Have a have a right a share in, they 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 that is part of their uh, well being. The workers who who mine it so that the mines can make money live in the community, and so therefore, um, the the city deserves to you know have nice things, uh, have uh, services that support those workers and make their lives better. Uh, while the mine is in operation, because when the mine closes, that's it. There's no tax revenue at all. The mines believed that because they were the majority taxpayer, keep in mind, imagine if you will, one company that pays 90% of the real dollars in taxes for a community. Like, there's nothing like that today in almost any community where one singular taxpayer does that. They believed that that gave them the right to determine whether or not you put four light bulbs on your street light or three. Uh, they believed that that was their right because it was their money that they're letting you have because of, you know, tax law or whatever. Um, and so uh, that was a debate over keeping wealth in the community. And it was, it was spurred on by uh, the merchant class of the community. It was not some radical socialist thing. It was called that by some. But it was the merchants. It was the business people who did this, who saw that the, the wealth would be, um, everyone would get wealthier if, the people and the money stayed in town. And I think that uh, any effort we can make to do that in any community, but especially on the range, is really important. Well, you've seen over the last three decades, uh, I think some of the end phase of the, that kinetic growth model. Um, the next phase is the dollar store, and the big box stores and that stuff disappear. Um, but what you see is this system where it's almost entirely extractive. Um, instead of having models where wealth essentially transfers around the community uh, in a less efficient, uh, messier uh, kind of way, uh, we've created very efficient systems to send wealth in. And in this area, one of the largest sources of capital is transfer payments, Social Security, Medicare, uh, other transfer payments, and then suck it right out again in terms of uh, you know, spending at Walmart and, 
and et cetera. This is not the way you build wealth locally. It's the way you subsist. And if we want to get beyond subsistence, uh, we're going to have to talk about things that are less efficient, a little more messy, that keep capital here locally. I didn't even get into the Minnesota Miracle stuff from earlier, Chuck. Yeah, I just, we should we'll, talk about that We'll get later. to that later, yeah. yeah. Well, this is the time of Dig Deep. We want your questions or comments. Um, I'm going to, I can come around with the microphone or you can come up to this microphone here. Does anyone have written ones? Yep, happens. Here's Scott Hall joining this, this us. This live? Yes. Okay. I think so. All right, the first half of the 20th century, two world wars, tens of millions of people die, a worldwide depression, and uh, most of the world really tired of that. Is it going to, require some kind of trauma, maybe not that big. Also the fear of nuclear war. Is it going to require some kind of trauma to change the way we look at the way we do things? It's a, it's a deep intellectual question, and it's one that I've struggled with a lot, and I'm very uncomfortable with where I go when I think this one through. Um, because, you know, when, when you have crises, uh, think of how we all felt on 9-11 and the days immediately after. Uh, we had, you know, congressmen out holding, you know, locking arms, singing the, the national anthem together on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, I remember coming home and people had candles on in their windows, you know, candles lit. Uh, I remember feeling this intense connection to the people around me. And the thing about being united like that is a lot of our... Uh, if we want to call them petty concerns, but I think it'd probably be better stated, a lot of our fears of the other kind of go away when we see that common humanity in the other. Um, I talked to my grandfather, and, and it's amazing because he would describe both the Depression and World War II as difficult times. If you actually asked him about the happiest times in his life, most of those stories come from the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, I have, I have trouble reconciling that because what do I want for my daughters? I, I want them to be happy. I don't want them to want. I don't want them to feel fear and tension. But yet, on the other hand, I want them to have a life of meaning. And a life of meaning is not a life void of those things. It's, it's a life filled with uh, challenges that you kind of struggle to overcome. Are, are we a nation that has now become, you know, I think as, as maybe I'm sounding like an older person now, but have we become too soft and... You know, now we uh, can't talk to each other because of that, uh, you know, and all we need is a, a, a big hardship to unite us again. I think that would be very sad, um, but I, I'm, I struggle to find an alternative narrative uh, for how we actually start to work through some of these things again. Karen? When I was in high school, I was in the computer lab with um, a classmate, and it was my senior year, and we were... Uh, talking about our futures, and I was talking about how I wanted to be a, a journalism major. I was going to college for journalism. I was going to work in newspaper and radio, and I was going to report the news. And I asked him, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, well, I'd really like to like, be a, like a traveling um, marauder, I guess. I'd like to be in like some kind of like souped-up Jeep or something, and I'd like to drive around and... Um, like rescue people and um, and <laughs> like and a like, Mad Max character exactly. <laughs> and I said, "So you want to be Mad Max?" And he goes, "Kinda, yeah." 
And I said, well, you realize that for you to be Mad Max, we have to have an apocalypse. We have to have yeah. an apocalypse. And almost all the people on Earth have to die, except for a few that you would be rescuing uh, or fighting in some fashion. And he, he thought about that, but he was determined. Uh, I think he's in IT now. Uh, Last so maybe I, he's creating the apocalypse. Last I checked. <laughs> we'll be hooked up to machines. Anyway, uh, maybe that sounds like a digression, but I, I, it came to mind because um, w the thing about drama and crises and world happenings is that we don't generally get to pick them. A handful of historic figures might have influence over something happening. Uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, who, who imagined creating a, a strike in uh, the heart of his enemy that would tear it apart. And wow, sorry, that was a dark moment there. Yeah, no. but, um, but, but if you think about it, a handful of historic figures of dubious means can change history. But if you're trying to imagine like a cosmetic, like going on a diet, uh, like we're gonna have a little bit of hardship so we get good abs, you know, um, it doesn't work that way. We deal with the hardships and challenges that come to us. We don't get to pick them. And uh, our hardships are, on one hand, not so bad because, you know, I can go 50 cents. Because it's I, not World War. And it's right, not, I can right. get a star crunch at the gas station for 50 right. cents. You know, right. I can get a, a nine-pound right. bag of rice, uh, you know, and I can just take it home and, you know, I can eat that for not a lot of money. So on one hand, it's not so bad. But on the other, the disparity, the, the, the disparities between rich and poor, between haves and have-nots, in-power groups and out-power groups, th those are growing. And that just is always a historical sign of trouble on the horizon. But if trouble's on the horizon, um, I, I, I would so, say it, so be it. I would say it like this, and I, I think you're onto something. Tell me if you think this is, I, I, I feel like the problems we have now are not simple cause-effect solution type of problems. They're these like this chronic, mm -hmm. multi-causal, many many vector kind of problems, and they're the, they're the ones that are really difficult to to address. There is right. no program that we can institute that will address anxiety. Yet we have this epidemic of anxiety, and it is literally destroying people's lives. How do we create lives of meaning for people? I, I feel like this is what our ancestors did really well. That we today uh, have. And I could get into how we've arranged ourselves. We've arranged ourselves in such a way on the landscape uh, that takes away, again, a lot of that complex feedback that our ancestors just took for granted. We have a question from Kayla from across the Art Center. Hello. Uh, so I wanted, wanted to ask an art space question, but I have a question that's more related um, both to the podcast and to the book. Um, so after having purchased your book and I listened to the podcast um, on KAXC, um, I have a feeling that you are representative of your political ideologies. Um, however, when I read the book and when I listen, I'm kind of startled to find that there is um, sometimes inadequate mentions of indigenous people and nations um, and actions and limited uh, understanding of the use of the term tribal throughout the book and the podcast. Um, in fact, in the book, the only time I was able to find reference to Native people was a fairly punitive remark about Pacific Islanders' reaction to um, the war leaving them. Um, and so I kind of, I guess, would challenge your use of the term tribal in the book and in the podcast um, related to the divisiveness of American politics. 
Um, the current use and abuse of the word tribal in this way is a contemporary example of erasure and historical amnesia in terms of tribal sovereignty. Um, and so every time we use that word to de describe our divisiveness and angry political climate, we're suggesting that tribal people and governments don't exist. And so when I see that image of Brainerd um, earlier on in the, in the PowerPoint, I'm, I'm, and the thought that this land was just there for them to take and they started with nothing, to me that's not really true because they started with a land theft. Whether or not they saw it that way, they started with resources, whether that be oil, minerals, water, timber. They started above, above nothing, I guess. And so there was a, a quote that you had in the book that related to people being um, able to start with nothing and pull, like, bring themselves up to like create success, I guess, in, their, in our small towns. And even thinking about the example of Brainerd and creating a, a walkable distance area, like people were actually removed from that land and economies were separated. So I guess essentially my question is how in this book and in the podcast do you, both of you, evaluate like tribal and indigenous histor historicism and contemporary actions, maybe like from both of your political ideologies? Because I don't think that you can have starting in 1870 without the entire history that happened before that, I guess. Um, I'll start with that. Uh, I, I think the fascinating thing, and if you read the book, you saw me reference ancient civilizations. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the fascinating things to me is to look back in history and see the similarity between that organic way cities grew, where we have photos. You know, I show photos of Brainerd because we actually had cameras then. We didn't have cameras of New York. We didn't have cameras of, of Tennis Chalon. We didn't have cameras of ancient Athens. Uh, you know, so we have diagrams and, and images, but we don't have like the big pictures that we do from 1870 in my hometown. Uh, the thing that struck me is how similar these places evolved. Um, you had people who were nomadic. When they would begin to settle into communities, they would start to build in a very similar way. I've had a chance to, and I wrote extensively about the book, The Ruins of Pompeii. Um, the ruins of Pompeii are, you know, 3,500 years old. Uh, I, I think that's how old it was. Uh, it might not be that quite that old. Um, but, you know, you, you look, and I, I think the point, and I make this point a number of times about spooky wisdom, what we have done in our uh, kind of embrace of this kinetic growth strategy is we have thrown away the wisdom of the past. There was all this kind of knowledge about how to build places. That knowledge was not uh, the purview of, of you know, white Northern Europeans. That was universal knowledge that we find in civilizations, ancient civilizations, modern, uh, around the world in different latitudes and cultures and, and, and continents. Uh, we see this kind of evolutionary knowledge, this way of building human habitat that people all over the world figured out. And we have, in a modern sense, casually disregarded it. Um, and so for me, there's, there's a huge amount of deference, uh, maybe not in a like, modern political sense, the way that, that you and I could have a conversation about that. But throughout the book, there's a huge amount of deference to past knowledge and wisdom uh, that came from many, many sources and, and was integrated in the sources, kind of tied to the place. Uh, that, that we have casually disregarded in ways that I find quite reckless. 
you know, language is a, we live in this, these prisons of language. And, uh, and th by that I mean language uh, restricts how we can communicate what we see around us. And I'll just say this, it takes a real uh, amount of conscious effort for a, for a white guy from the range to understand uh, native issues. I, uh, I was raised on uh, the Saxim Bog in uh, an area that surely would have been populated for thousands of years by people long before my ancestors came to this country. And I was raised with no instruction or knowledge of those people, no understanding of those people. And, and if, if I heard anything, it was a modern political uh, cultural interpretation of what Native Americans were to my white family from, from Sweden and Finland and places like that. It's taken me a lot of time and effort to read and learn and um, to, to know more and to learn these tricks in language, I shouldn't say tricks, but these pitfalls in language um, where I don't think a word is anything bad, but I now realize that some words uh, means something very different to other people, and I need to have some empathy to that. I need to understand that. You know, this is, a lot of people uh, recoil um, because they're used to their language, and I still recoil when I hear there's a, a phrase that, I, I remember I had a big, um, not to open another sore subject, but um, the, the Christmas song, Baby It's Cold Outside, and I, and I shouldn't even bring it up, but um, the, the blowback on that song over its insinuations of non-consensual um, contact, uh, you know, I got, I liked that song. And, and to me, it meant something different. But to other people, it meant, it meant something bad. And so you have to think about that. It's not that I'm, you know, I still sometimes play the song. But... It's not, it's just I have to understand that other people are having their experience, and it's not the same as my experience, and it takes some effort to do that. So to your question, what are we doing, um, I, you know, obviously we're often talking about current events, and sometimes we weave in history. Uh, we've done a marginal, probably not a great job of bringing indigenous stories into our podcast. I am working on this history project, 1915 Hibbing. And I am overwhelmed with the desire to learn more about the native population around Hibbing at that time because it was really only a few years separated from when they were removed from that very land. And in fact, some of the people who were physically removed from the land lived not very far away, the same people, the, not like the descendants of, but the actual people. I want to know more about those people. I think we all do better when we understand those stories. And it, it, helps, it helps us understand that people have their experiences. So... Um, to, to that, and, and, and I, know, I know I've caught myself saying the word tribal um, in a non, what I viewed as a non-offensive way. I, I'm learning to better understand the, the way that word impacts others. You try to do better, and um, the point is well taken. Send us your feedback to this live Dig Deep conversation. You can email comments at kaxe.org. You can also hear the live event at our website and sign up for the podcast. I'm Heidi Holton. This has been Dig Deep. <laughs>